0: Hey everyone, and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray, and Adam Boileau is here with me in the flesh to Ooh, do the here news. I am, yes. Yeah, here he is. Uh, so yeah, Adam's been in Australia the last couple of weeks and uh, you know travelling around and talking at conferences and meeting customers and things like that. And he's just arrived in my little town today and we're going to hang out here at Shea Gray for a little bit. And then we'll both be heading to Canberra next week to record episode 700 of the podcast live at the CyberCon conference. Um, So if you're coming along to the conference, that is the Wednesday keynote. We'll see you there. Uh, This week's show is brought to you by Yubico and Yubico's COO, Jared Chong is this week's sponsor guest and we'll be talking a bit about how apple sees fido 2 keys uh to use apple's advanced protection features for icloud you actually need two fido keys you need a primary and a backup and you know we're going to talk about why that's actually a very good idea one of the problems with security keys is if you're only using one and you lose it or break it then you know you're falling back to typical help desk account reset procedures, which are not known for being terribly secure. But when a user has two, you know it's a different story. Uh, they've got a backup and they've got a primary, and it just makes them much less likely to have to uh, go to the help desk. So that interview is coming up after the news, though, which starts now. And Adam, the first thing we're going to talk about is I got to kind of roll back some stuff I said last week. So regular listeners would have heard uh, last week, I said that, uh, you know, in in the case of the last pass breach, the attacker uh, hacked one of the engineers home networks by using a vulnerability uh, in Plex. They exploited a vulnerability in Plex. Um, I heard from a friend of mine who worked an incident. Uh, which was, they said, connected to, to North Korea, in which Plex was also exploited. So I sort of did some, you know, mega brain dot connecting, and thought, oh well, you know, it's 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 got to be North Korea behind LastPass. The thing is, over the last week, I have not been able to find anyone else who can confirm that Plex exploitation is a North Korean TTP. So I honestly, I I just think, um, you know, that was not right and um you know so I'm, I'm i'm walking it back
1: yeah well doing attribution is always hard and you know it's if this you can see the whole picture and often it just takes time you know you get yeah. more information as the investigations keep carrying on and i mean these days even if you get something that looks like north korea it can be russians pretending to be north koreans it can be north koreans pretending to be russians pretending to be north koreans it can be chinese pretending to be north korean russians i mean it's just the world is it's hard these days. Yeah, well, attribution. Att- attribution by podcast, it turns out, isn't
0: the most reliable uh, <laughs> uh, way to do it. Um, but I will say that I've had a really interesting week actually, because when I first started feeling uncertain about this, obviously I reached out to a bunch of people, which I probably should have done before I said what I said, <laughs> uh, to be clear. But I did hear from some folks at Pass, and they were absolute sports about me, um, you know, flapping my flapping my gums, um, but had, had really interesting chats with them. I spoke to some North Korea specialists as well. Uh, one who I know, and another one reached out from one of the major crypto exchanges, like their North Korea person reached out to me and they're like, well, we haven't seen this, you know, what have you got? Sort of thing. And I'm like, oh dear, if you haven't seen it, then, um, you know, perhaps my source just made a mistake, assigned something to the wrong cluster or, or whatever. But... But it could still be them. And and there's still a couple of things that scream North Korea. One is the targeting of an engineer, which I know is very, very weak on its own. Uh, But that is something that North Korea is certainly doing at the moment, which is just really targeting sysadmins and engineers. Um, And the other thing is the the use of ExpressVPN, which is just, you know, anyone who works incident response or CTI will tell you that just screams North Korea. Um, But, you know, those two things on their own, uh, you know, not even close to being enough to even... You know, be at all confident that it's um, that it's them.
1: Yeah, it's certainly difficult um, to do attribution, even with even with access to great information. Of course, we are but humble podcasters. Yes, that's right,
0: that's right. But you know, this got me thinking as well, just about the nature of these attacks. So, one thing that came through is I spoke to you know my good friend Ryan Calamber over at Proofpoint about all this and, you know, they obviously see all of the phishing attempts and malware attempts against engineers coming in because, uh, they're, you know, it's their job to filter them uh, from, from the email vector and, you know, the, the, the way that engineers are being targeted at the moment and, you know, certainly in this last past example where we did see a threat actor exploit Plex on the person's, you know, home, mm-hmm. on the engineer's home yeah. network, this is something that we have to think about now and I think really... You know, perhaps the attribution discussion is 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 getting us a bit sidetracked from that point. Which is these days, you have very capable threat actors out there who are targeting home networks because that gets them into the enterprise, right? And how do you even begin to deal with that? I mean, you've said a number of times recently. I've noticed you saying this more lately that you know BYD is um, BYOD is just bad news, right? And I think I think we're getting to the point where that's that's probably important advice. Uh,
1: yes I think so and and if you're going to go after you know engineers and security researchers and, and just nerds in general you know most nerds do have some kind of janky home network filled with half-finished projects or homebrew you know home automation systems or media systems or, or whatever else and you know if an attacker is willing to cross their boundary and go into people's personal environments and then use that to pivot onwards towards you know business targets you know that's a thing that you know, if we were doing security assessments, if we're, you know, mapping out people's networks, whatever, like that's not a thing that we, you know, kind of white hats can go into, right? Mm. I mean, uh, one um, one engagement I was on, uh, we bought someone's laptop that they were selling on eBay and then forensic the disk in the hope of getting, you know, credentials and keys and whatever else for work. Turned out it was their previous job.
0: Oh, uh, man. And
1: so we had kind of <laughs> like, we was a little on the edge of scope, right? Yeah, and yeah, that yeah. even then that felt a little weird. Um, but yeah, we can't... You know, your regular security people are not going to be in a position to understand the state of your engineers and you know, developers and whoever else's home and personal systems, and nor kind of should we.
0: Yeah. It also occurred to me, though, that a threat actor who is in the habit of targeting engineers and sysadmins, last pass is a great target for them. Because yes. sysadmins and, and, you know, work-from-home engineers, even work on site engineers... You know, they're managing so many systems, they need a password manager, right? Absolutely, so, yeah. So I think that part, I'm sort of confident in saying, like, that's what the attacker was after, which is, you know, an attacker that seems very good at, you know, hitting sysadmins, going after LastPass like that.
1: It makes, yeah. a, makes a lot of sense. Because, well, and, and,
0: and another interesting thing here, right, is that they're not just going after, like, VPN credentials, right? These This this is a sort of new breed of attacker which tends to understand, you know, modern systems. They're going after stuff like AWS. They're, you know... They're They're going after, as I say, they're not just going after VPN creds yes um, they seem to know what they're doing and how trust works
1: yeah i mean a modern attacker has to be able to move fluidly between on-prem applications cloud infrastructure you know as a service environments and you know authentication for those like there's so many ways of doing it with you know uh, tokens and api keys and multi-factor and passwords and blah 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 That you know getting into the auth flows like that's the path you have to go as an attacker and if that leads through home systems because engineers need to be able to respond to a page at two o'clock in the morning and. So so they've got their home set up to get access quickly and easily. It's it's where you're going to go as an attacker now. So yeah,
0: yeah. And I just think I just think about the volumes of stuff that we have connected to our networks these days. I, I bought a sound bar for my television that requires you know internet access and an account to be able to use the app that comes with it. Right. <laughs> so like yeah. if someone brute forces that account can they push down some malicious Python to it like they did with Plex I mean Plex is probably more serious because people have bad habits with Plex like they plumb it up to their G drive so yes. they can store media in the cloud and you know crazy stuff like that but you know, I mean, you say, yes, of course, they need to understand these things, but it's not really what we've seen out of work a day attackers, this no, sort of no. stuff, right? This seems, this feels a bit like a shift.
1: Yes, like you think about how fluidly attackers can move through Windows environments now, classic on-prem Windows, right? And that's, you know, even five years ago, all of the ways that we would, you know, get domain admin and move around or use certificate services, all of our understanding of Windows auth and Windows networking, you know, has matured to the point where it's very polished. And that's where we're heading with, attackers use of cloud environments like they will yeah. get that smooth and a few years from now like it'll be they'll be moving laterally as fast through your cloud as they do with you know Kerberoasting your domain and, and onwards from there
0: you don't you don't gotta hand it to them <laughs> <laughs> you don't gotta hand it to them um, but yeah look big thanks to everyone who i spoke to this week And look as i say it could well be north korea but the thing that really jumped out to me right was okay use of expressvpn which I've heard very confidently that they, the attackers in the last pass case did use that. Um, you know The way that they targeted it, you know, the organization being targeted, I don't know, it just, it just plus the CVE. That was the thing that really did it for me. And, and without that plank, because I do think my information on that was wrong, I just, I just do because I haven't been able to substantiate it elsewhere. And without that plank, I just think you know, I should have I kept my pie hole um, shut um, you know, if, I, if I wasn't able to verify that <laughs> plank. Um, but let's see where it lands. Let's see if they get an attribution. They may not. They yep. may not be able to, to you know, do enough analysis. to They, might not, they may not have a, enough forensic artifacts left behind to actually make that call.
1: We yep. just don't know. Yep. Yeah. I mean, if they're operating smooth, they may well not.
0: Yeah, but through this whole thing, Adam, I've got to say, I experienced a little bit of emotional damage. <laughs> <laughs> I hate being wrong. Uh, I Hate being wrong. Uh, yeah. I hate. I hate it when I get bad info. But uh, and and you know, no fault at all to the person who shared that with me because I do think that they clearly believed it, and they're a very competent person, right? So I, I I don't know what's happened here, but it's um
1: yeah. This is the everyday roller coaster for everyone who works in in yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so just just saying, we feel your pain here at Risky HQ 2 So yeah, 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 that's
0: right, that's right. <laughs> um, okay, so look, staying on the topic of North Korea, Mandy and actually dropped some really interesting reports on a crew they call UNC two nine.
1: Yeah, this seems to be kind of extension of some of the previous North Koreans' attacks on um, what was the crew that was doing all of the like jobs, like sending people job ads or sending people recruiting. Uh, or I can't anyway, remember what that were called. Whatever they were called, but anyway, yeah. it seems to be either similar crew or similar kind of mo uh, coming out of North Korea and targeting, you know, once again, sysadmins, security researchers, engineering types. Uh, this was apparently being this campaign, which had a you know, bunch of pieces of malware and um, and lures and so on and so forth, was initially being used relatively quietly. Then when they got snapped by Mandy and started uh, popping up as a more widespread kind of campaign, I guess, once you've built the tooling when you, and you're snapped, you may as well, you know, make hay while it still works. Um, there's a couple of funny parts of this. I mean, the job lures are much as you'd expect. There's a bunch of, um, you know, sock puppet LinkedIn accounts uh, set up to kind of lure people in drag them over to WhatsApp to continue a conversation and then hit them with, you know, maldocs and and other things. Um, The real joy for me in this one was eventually the, like, the thing it drops on you, the the, um, malware and so on. Uh, Eventually, well, amongst other things, bootstrap Microsoft Intune for persistence, which... I mean, that's now that's living on the land, and I do, in fact, got to hand it to them for that because, like, that's just, that made me chortle, so.
0: Yeah, it sort of reminded me of, you know, a few months ago, we spoke about uh, uh, um, a big seam expensive, what's it called? Um, Splunk. Splunk, yes. (laughs) That's my way of remembering it. Yeah, um, a a fine description. Someone had, you know, found a way to use um, Splunk, basically, as malware, right? And it's the same sort of thing. And a lot, you know, anything that has a lot of access to a machine and is as infinitely configurable as something like Splunk or something like Intune, you know, eventually someone's going to use it like this. I think the saving grace here, though, is, as you point out, this is kind of a persistence mechanism they use after they've already dropped a bunch yes. of malware on you. So, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to stop this. But I'm guessing most people, you know, most security researchers, uh, you know, who are going to be talking to to these people about, you know, their fantastic new job, they're not going to be doing it from a work machine. This is going to be their home machine. So... You know, detection may be a little bit harder there.
1: Yes, that's a good point, and that's you know, outside of the umbrella of uh, you know corporate control and and uh, monitoring is a great place to attack. Yeah, um, you know, we did the same. You know, we do the same things with you know wireless networks, etc. If you can do that, you know, attack a client device when it's away from the corporate network and you're not being watched, you've got better options. So yeah, total, very legit targeting approach.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, Ring, the doorbell <laughs> oh, no. slash surveillance you know, <laughs> <laughs> company owned by Amazon. Alf V is out there claiming that they have all of this Ring data, that they have, you know, stolen all of this data and they're doing this data extortion thing against against Ring. Problem is Ring is out there saying, well, we don't have any evidence that they were, you know, in our systems. But they're they're kind of keeping their PR pretty tightly worded on this, which has led some people to believe that maybe one of their, you know, third party contractors or something. Uh, has been popped and some data taken and they didn't sort of they sort of glomard a little bit as Mm -hmm. to whether or not they're being they're being extorted Um, but yeah it looks like there may have been an incident there but it's it's a little bit difficult to say.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly Ring is going to be getting a bunch of attention just because of the you know the history and some of the previous concerns about the their data privacy and so on and so forth. Uh, so, going to get a lot of focus. You would hope that that focus and risk had already been kind of taken into account by Ring and that they had relatively robust controls in place, mm. um, which you know hopefully right. Uh, but you know, the idea of a third party, you know, supplier contract, like that's a thing that we've seen happen a bunch, um, and you know, ransomware crews are in the end therefore you know applying pressure to get money it doesn't necessarily have to be real pressure like it just has to look that way so yeah we don't we don't know but if they uh you know, they've got a, an entry up on their leak site but we haven't seen any actual data leaked yet so we don't know yet
0: yeah, we just don't know, but I mean, it's it's amazing how much press they're getting, and it, and it sort of plays into the hands of you know Alfie slash Black yes. Hat, right? It plays into their into their hands quite nicely, which is, you know, you just claim to have had, claim to have a bunch of their data, and then you get you know a million headlines bloom, basically, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we've seen that with um, you know other extortion campaigns in the past, but it's just like you don't even need to hack them. You just need to make people believe you did, and it might be enough to get you paid somewhere.
0: Now, this next story from Politico is borderline freaky, right? Because, you know, all over Seriously Risky Business and on Risky Business, this podcast you're all listening to right now, uh, you know, we've talked about how the White House's cybersecurity strategy, you know, forcing companies to use sensible development methodologies if they want safe harbor from being sued because their EULA won't stand up in court and blah, 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 blah. Like, we've, we've all talked about that. But, you know, one problem we highlighted with that is it doesn't take care of the bad business practices of companies like Microsoft who will release some incredibly powerful new platform and then charge people an arm and a leg for the tools that they they need to um, uh, secure it. So we're like, oh, it's a shame the White House isn't on top of that. Uh, next minute, um, a bunch of White House officials gave an interview to Politico, uh, unnamed White House officials, talking about how they want to tackle exactly this. And I am 100% here for this.
1: Yeah, this, uh, this reporting certainly made me feel pretty good about some of the things we've talked about in the past and the options for uh, making the cloud a little more robust, a little more regulated. Uh, so they're talking about things like, you know, uh, that example you used of Microsoft of you know having to pay extra for security controls. We saw that hamper, I think, even the Colonial Pipeline investigation.
0: No, it was SolarWinds, I Solowins, think, Solowins, that's a, yes, Solowins, in that case, right? Yes. So, the you know, there was just... Very limited logging available because you know logging—that's <laughs> a premium feature. Yes, you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So that that kind of nickel and diming people on security—you know—if there was a way to make that go away, which it sounds like where what they're angling for—I mean, my my go-to like exa- move,
0: my go-to example was always the fact that you needed to be a PowerShell nin- ninja to be able to you know block our apps yes. and you yes, know yes, stuff yes, in yes. stuff in in the enterprise. But the logging is a good example as well, right? Yes. And. I'm I'm so happy that legislators are taking, well, at least officials at this point are taking a look at this. The other thing they talk about in this story is um, the KYC stuff, which is hitting cloud. That was actually a Trump thing. It was like January 2021, um, you know, managed to put this out, KYC requirements for cloud providers in between, I guess, trying to overthrow the democracy in the United States and other other stuff that they were doing, managed to... um, to get that out and yeah I mean I just think this is this is good that they're taking a look at this
1: yeah I mean the fundamental promise of a cloud as a service or cloud vendor is that they take on a bunch of this responsibility for you but then you get very little visibility about how good a job they're doing and anything that's going to either require them to do a good job and prove it to someone especially for government customers or you know meet certain standards or something that lets you make risk decisions about those you know, cloud service and software as a service offerings, you know, despite the fact that you have limited technical visibility and limited rights to be able to go and investigate those systems yourself.
0: I mean, I do, look, as, as, as happy as I am that they're looking at looking at this, I do wonder how you would go about applying regulation to solve this problem, though. I do have to say, like, I I, I just don't, I can't think of, like in the case of trying to improve code quality, they've said, if you want to be protected by your end user license agreements, you know, we're going to draft laws that say, if you want to be protected from being sued by your customers, by your end user license agreements, you will need to follow, you know, secure, secure development processes, you know, like these NIST guidelines, you'll need to do certain things with patching or blah, 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 blah. So. You know, you can sort of checklist that one. This one, not so much.
1: Yes, yeah, and certainly, like, know your customer. That's going to be difficult because you know there's a, a lot of value in the cloud and being able to move very quickly, spin things up very quickly.
0: Uh, I'm not so much worried about that one. I, I think the KYC stuff will get there. But when it comes to saying, okay, you've got to turn on logging, you know, what else? You know, what, what, you know, is it, is it now? Is there now going to be a government panel that decides what essential security features are for default? You know, cloud cloud tenants like i you know i just really wonder how they'll go with this
1: yeah i mean i guess what i would like to see i suppose is kind of evidence-based where you know you talk to the companies themselves and incident responders who have to respond to incidents that involve cloud things and establish whether or not they have the data and services that they need so like if you're looking at google now having brought mandium into the fold right you would expect from them you know as a differentiator to say we have an incident response people in-house you know, who have worked together, blah, 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 right to leverage those synergies and that the ability to respond on the platform is a thing. I mean, you would hope. You would hope, of course. But you, you never know, know But right? you, never, <laughs> like, you never know. Like, I mean, you want to see the ability to do effective response across a cloud service. Yeah. You know, yeah. For a customer, like how do I respond to, I've been breached and the attack has moved upwards into my Azure, what do? Yeah,
0: but then how does that, how does that apply to my OAuth? yes situation right it doesn't you know and and for a while you sort of had to buy their casby product to
2: <laughs>
1: do you know what i mean <laughs> like, it's just, such a terrible market segment i hate it yeah so yeah <laughs> but
0: it's you know now they, they've uh, they've kind of rolled out features to make that stuff more um sensible but i i just wonder how that how that will go yeah. i mean maybe requiring them to to do some sort of risk assessment on stuff Maybe not a crazy idea, right?
1: Yeah, although, you know, once again, it's very hard, you know, when especially when you've got giant sets of attack services constantly changing and then, you know, the ability to secure an individual, you know, AWS service, probably reasonable, but understanding what the attack service is for the entirety of AWS and how it could impact your use of it, I... I you know, that's a hard thing to keep on top of, especially well, as an outsider.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone's expecting them to fix everything, right? No. But but how do you define what's crack pipe and what's not? Yeah. And that's going to be the hard part, yes. right? Yeah, um, Which is, I'm guessing, why White House officials are talking about this to Politico instead of actually releasing policy documents. Yeah.
1: Yeah, right? Probably, <laughs> yes. And look, they're going to need help from all of the cloud vendors to come up with you know what's a reasonable set of regulation because I mean for the big providers like this is an opportunity for them to squeeze out yeah. you know cheaper yolo operators Right. Maybe,
0: but I mean, you know, I'd expect anything like this would apply to the big ones. You know what I mean? Like yes. they that you would have to be this high to enter the compliance regime, sort of thing. That's a that's a way to do it without crushing innovation, etc. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. But you also have to make it clear to your customers like who is in scope for this thing, what it means, what guarantees it provides. I mean, overall, like the thing they're trying to solve is everything's on the cloud, and if we blast a zero out of the water, then you know, do we think AWS and uh, you know? And Google have enough capacity and do people. Well that's another that's do, a different
0: sort of separate issue, which is um, you know, which is raised in that piece by Mark Rogers, which is if one of these falls over,
1: yeah, what happens big, then? Big right? big butter boom is what happens.
0: Yeah, I mean I think it was Dan Gere raised that with yeah. me years ago, which yeah. is he's like, look, we don't have enough capacity if one of these things goes away, right? Like even even if you just look at it from a data transfer yeah. perspective, <laughs> say they had the capacity, we don't have the network capacity to actually move all of these tenancies over to like it's just it would be very bad and it would cause kind of a bit of a cascading failure i mean we got we got a sense of that didn't we during COVID, when azure ran out of capacity because everyone started using teams and microsoft cloud just couldn't quite cope
1: yeah and it's also we you know we don't understand the like interrelationships between these things, like how many of the management platforms for Azure are secretly on AWS so they can keep it running even if Azure is down, <laughs> you know? And then who knows, you know, who knows from there what yeah. kind of madness we have built because we it's just so complex and we don't understand how it holds together.
0: Yeah, but just for a while, you know, it was like Azure capacity was like something you pretty much had to scalp.
1: Yes, you know, and, <laughs> and,
0: it, and it depended on who you were yeah, too, yeah. right? And what your relationship <laughs> with your account manager was like and, you know, whatnot. Uh. Um, now, CIsa is spinning up, well, has spun up a new initiative. It apparently kicked off on January 30. Uh, but it's called their, what is it called? It's called the ransomware Vulnerability Warning Pilot. And what they're doing is they're going out to sort of critical industries and whatever. And they're doing some you know scanning and some uh, and some footprinting of these organizations to see if the types of weaknesses that ransomware crews love are present. And if they are present, they're notifying these organisations so that they can remediate these issues. You know, I think this is a good um, proactive thing that CISA is doing. I do wonder how much it'll move the needle, but I don't think that's a reason not to try.
1: Yes, agreed. Like the idea that, uh, you know, someone somewhere, you know, should be responsible for scanning the internet, spotting bad stuff that's likely to happen and warning people. I mean, private industry groups have been doing that, certs have been doing that, you know. If your critical infrastructure operator has nasty on-prem exchange on the Internet, it kind of seems like it's worth just sending them an email and saying, hey, Scissor here, just letting you know in case no one told you, here's your bad exchange or here's your sonic wall or here's your pulse or whatever else. Right? It may not save, it may not be much in terms of big picture needle moving, but every one of those incidents you can stop happening you know, is, is a good job and like even one major critical infrastructure operator being compromised. If you can stop it, that's probably worth doing it.
0: Yeah, exactly, right. And, you know, protecting critical infrastructure is certainly within their remit. So uh, nice one, CISA. Hope it goes well. Now, um, yeah, this one's made some news as well. There's been some sort of data breach affecting, what is it, the health insurer of choice for like congressional members and their staff? Is that right?
1: Uh, I think it's the operator of the local marketplace for healthcare services in DC. Okay, Uh, So if you want to use the Affordable Care Act uh services you have to use whoever the local operator is and that's the operator for DC uh, and congress people etc um and we've started to see some data from it showing up on the uh, on the dark web and i don't know like this is how you get regulation yeah
0: <laughs> yeah it certainly does feel like you know at this point there's very little that can happen in terms of data being leaked and ransomware that would surprise us, right? <laughs> yes, you know. Yeah,
1: we we have we feel like we've seen it all, but then we'll say that, and then next week it'll be something new and wild and crazy. Yeah, and
0: uh, and living in a non-extradition country is a hell of a drug. Yes. I'll say that because you know if you've got the confidence can, to go and do this to U.S. lawmakers, like you're really not worried about authorities. Like it just screams, ah, I have impunity, (laughs) suck it, you know?
1: And especially like now that there's been some press around it, because originally like this could have just been a, you know, they target anything they can. And now they've figured out, people have started to figure out uh, that they've got some data on some juicy people, got some leverage. But yeah, like I I don't know that I'd want to be doing this. But then again, I guess I don't. I mean, we've I said that before.
0: We've said that before when they went after like the DC police, and, yeah. this, and they they gone after the U.S. Marshal Service for God's <laughs> sake, you know. And now, and now, actual lawmakers, and you just think, well, you know, there's no, there's nothing sacred to these yeah. to these crews, right? And it
1: does make you wonder though, like if you're not willing to respect, you know, the l- law. Uh, then maybe the response you get doesn't also need to respect law. Maybe you get thrown off a bridge. Yeah, so, you know. I mean,
0: I, I don't see, I don't see U.S. Uh, you know agencies throwing throwing them off bridges. I don't see that happening, unfortunately. I mean, maybe they should. <laughs> I guess maybe my they point. should, but you know, certainly we have seen the rhetoric from government, you know, really change on yes. this, and they sound like us now when they talk about this problem, yeah. which is we need to disrupt them, we need to degrade their ability to do business, blah 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 blah. So. You know, that's going to take a while to turn things around. But I also think people forget that before Silk Road was taken down, you know, this was seen as a crime type that would never be defeated. Yes. You know, this was seen as, oh, my God, technology has enabled this crime and it's going to be eBay for drugs forever, right, Um, at massive scale. And it just didn't work out that way because once there was a template for um, taking down those sites, that, I mean, there are still some in, in Russia and whatnot, but I think... By and large, you know, criminals don't really feel safe using those services anymore. Yes. It's not what it was. I mean, Silk Road was such a free-for-all, as is ransomware now. And I do think we will eventually get to the point where, um, you know, we, we, we can make an impact on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think like the percentage of people you meet down the pub who are like, oh, and I bought my drugs off Silk Road last week you know, they just arrived, yay. Yeah, yeah, like, you, don't you don't hear that get anymore. You don't hear that yeah. anymore. Yeah, um, so, yeah you know. we hang out with degenerates, so we know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, what else have we got here? Yeah, so last week we spoke about uh, one of these ransomware crews leaking nude images of breast cancer patients just because, as we said at the time, they love to plumb new depths. Uh, one of those patients is now suing the organisation that lost the data, which, you know, I mean, I get it. Um, I sort of think we don't know all that much about this incident. But it may not be their fault, you know, and it's just, it's just, I can understand someone wanting their pound of flesh because of this. Yes, I absolutely understand that, and absolutely no judgment um, on this on this woman for for launching a legal action, and you know. Probably through this legal action, we'll find out whether or not the health service in question was actually doing the right things here. But it's just, it makes me sad when I see this, when I see a healthcare organisation that exists to treat people for cancer actually being sued by one of their patients because of the actions of a bunch of horrible criminals, you know?
1: Yeah, no, it is, it is really horrid. Uh, the lawsuit alleges that they failed to adopt sufficient data security practices, which honestly probably true because it's really hard and we've seen so many breaches and so many healthcare like it, healthcare security is just super difficult and mm. as you say like the lawsuit uh, understandable makes sense but also like i know people who work healthcare infosec and for a second, it's just uh yeah yeah
0: a, well i mean that 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 data needs to be available to a lot of different people in a lot of different places, right? So that's that's hard to secure. Yes, yeah. You it's, know? Just, it's
1: just hard. And all the cost trade-offs and all of the, yeah. you know, yeah. Well, it, and then
0: there's immediacy as well, right? When you're treating a patient, um, you know, maybe not in the case of a, uh, of a cancer clinic, but certainly being able to have rapid access to someone's chart if they're being wheeled into an operating room and they're not breathing. Yes, exactly, um, You yes. know, that's the sort of thing that you don't want to be like, Where is my um, where is my code generator? Yeah. Moving on. And yeah, the FBI, they put out their annual like internet crime, uh, you know, report, which puts their numbers on, um, uh, you know, online crime. And apparently uh, BEC, at least as per the uh, FBI's numbers, has been dethroned as number one, like the so-called pig butchering scams where, you know, people basically get their hooks into some, you know, some lonely person on the internet and then start convincing them to put all their money in like whatever, you know, crypto. Token um, they're offering for sale or whatever, you know, it's like a, it's like an investment scam combined with a romance romance scam and whatnot. And um, you know, that's that's apparently racking up billions of dollars of reported losses now.
1: Yeah, thanks very much, cryptocurrency ecosystem, for facilitating you know, a new um, new twist on an old crime type and making it even bigger and better yeah. than before. BAC, meanwhile, BEC is
0: still it's up still big, on, right? <laughs> it, well, and and, it, and it's still increased on the prior year, but it's just like pig butchering has come in and, and, and sort of leapfrogged.
1: Yeah, so what we're talking like what two two and a half billion worth of BC versus three and change billion of three point three billion uh, worth of this kind of like financially focused confidence scamming. Yeah, so it's big money.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> Why did I laugh when I clicked over to this story? But um, <laughs> yeah, someone's going out there uh, exploiting uh, SonicWall. Um, is apparently it's like a Chinese APT is exploiting um, security appliances from SonicWall. But they've got like their persistence sorted out so <laughs> that even after you. <laughs> Update the firmware; um, they're still there, which is like you know fun times. Yes,
1: yeah, so, so I mean, obviously, there's been a bunch of bugs in these kinds of you know small office, small business uh, firewall products. But yeah, the uh, the thing that is particularly funny about this is that their mechanism for surviving. Um, if you firmware update them. So Sonic will put out some advisories advising you to you know, update your device, et cetera. Uh, and so this crew basically just has a con job that checks every few minutes to see if someone's uploaded the firmware image prior to you know, the upgrade process kicking off, like if they're mid-upgrade. Uh, and then it will just grab the firmware image, unpack it, copy itself into the firmware image that you're about to apply, repack it, and then let the update process run. So, oh,
0: man, that's cool. I didn't realize that's how this works. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, it's
1: awesome. So, it's so ghetto, but also just it works, right? And as we say on the show, right, it's not dumb if it works.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, that's um, that's actually properly hilarious. Yeah. And, you know, I just think like a lot of these SME, you know, security appliances, like people need them, right? We talk down at them. People need them, but it's just sometimes when, you know, when quality attackers apply a bit of thought to busting them, it's always pretty funny. Yeah. Now, last week we spoke about how uh, 4chan users somehow got access to Meta's uh, wonderful large language model, uh, Llama, and we uh, speculated that they would get it to do awful things. And um, wow, you know, that a didn't take horror. long. Yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> Breaking news, terrible things happened. And someone made a chatbot uh, for Discord that uses this model. And, yeah, of course, people are making it say terrible things.
0: Yeah, like the N-word and, and, and whatever, you know. So, um yeah, just following that up that, yes, they, they did success succeed in getting it to be awful very very quickly um and open ai is apparently uh releasing gpt4 which is the next version of their you know large language model uh chatbot and um you know it feels like we're off to the races with this stuff especially since chat gpt coming out you know got all of these other tech giants to go oh well we've been working on this too here's our model so i really feel like the next couple of years this stuff's just going to keep getting more and more powerful
1: yeah it's going to be a wild ride that's for sure and i mean OpenAI has been spending a heap of money doing a bunch of work uh they're keeping their gpt4 model a bit closer to the chest in Mm. terms of exactly how it's trained and where the data's from and etc you know i imagine in part because of the mess that we've seen at the end of you know at with ChatGPT and so on. Um, this ChatGPT4 also will take images and inputs. So it's kind of similar to the the GPT-3 that we were seeing being used to make images and stuff as well. So it's like a multimodal one. Uh, so nothing will go wrong, I'm sure. It'll be fine. Yeah,
0: yeah. Apparently it can see images, right? But, yeah. you know, it's funny because, um, you know, we've been talking a bit about this proposed UK law that's designed to combat CSAM. I think one area where we're going to see machine learning actually do very well is in combating stuff like child sex abuse material. I think that's one area where I think this stuff can be extremely useful. And I don't think it would be extremely useful and accurate right now, but I can see that if you spent a few years developing it to do that, it would be very good at taking an image and working out if it's it's CSAM.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, that's kind of what we are meant to be using robots and, you know, artificial intelligence in the future for things that humans shouldn't be doing. Don't get me wrong.
0: People are already doing this, but it's usually, like, then it gets flagged and it goes to human review and stuff like that. But I guess what I'm getting at is this is just going to get more and more and more and more accurate, right? And, And be able to even get a sense of context and things like that. So I think... I just think it's a promising area.
1: Yes, yeah. Well, we've got to find something useful to do with with AI before we destroy everything and everyone. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Before
0: Skynet is unleashed. um, Maybe we can get rid of the CSAM. That'd be (laughs) nice. Now, Microsoft has uh, published some research into uh, a group called Dev1101, right? Which uh, the headline here says they enable high volume um, AITM campaigns with open source phishing kit. And, and and these are the sort of, you know, current gen of phishing kits, which um, can bypass things like, you know, code-based auth and, you know, everything except FIDO2, basically. Yes, yeah. And, and you know, web auth and off a, off a uh, mobile device. Um, so they've actually done some real research into one of the groups that's that's renting out um, one of these uh, fish kits. And it's, you know, it's it's interesting reading. It's great background. I mean, this isn't like huge news. Like we know people use these things, but it's it's a great deep dive uh, on one of the groups that's actually making money out of this stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, these tools have been around for a while, but they were always fiddly. And I know, you know, when um, you know we were using similar techniques at work early on uh, for fishing people, that it was just a constant fiddle. So understanding where the tools have come from, like possible, but fiddly through to like, off the shelf, you can just buy them, pay your money, uh, and then they work really well and kind of what the capabilities of those are. is really useful. And I was interested to see the details about pricing as well. They started out yeah. doing it for like a hundred US dollars a month or something um, and then now it's up to quite a lot more because they, you know, more developer time is required. I'm sure the uh, Google team are pleased to see that uh, Gmail is a premium feature <laughs> that you have to pay more money for <laughs> as opposed to you know, a zero and 365, etc. Um, but yeah, just good to understand what capabilities your adversaries have um, and yeah, some uh, TDPs and IOCs, et cetera, uh, if you are responding.
0: Now we're going to look at a Brian Krebs story from Krebs on Security. A domain registrar in, I think, the Netherlands has stopped registering domains, right? Because they think they're getting sued by Meta or they were sued by Meta. But they, they, they have these um, certain TLDs that they'll give you free domains for and they've had to stop doing it because... As you can imagine, Adam, mm-hmm. it was
1: being abused. <laughs> what a what a shocking development! Um, uh, so they are uh, they have a TLD, country TLD for uh, .cf, the Central African Republic, uh, Gabon, Equatorial Guinea um mali and dot uh, tk tokelau uh, which you do see quite a lot of tk around um, yeah. and i guess that's why um, they uh, have stopped taking registrations on some of those um there's not really sure exactly you know whether it's going to come back or what the deal is but um when you look at the stats for uh you know how often domains from uh, tlds registered by freenom uh, appear in the stats like they're like what is like five of the top ten domains? Yeah, yeah, so DLDs, So
0: yeah. Of the top ten, they are four of the top ten. Yes. Yeah. So that's <laughs> um that's not great. Not not great, no. Yeah. But at least they've stopped now, but um yeah. Yeah, free domains. Who'd have thought that would be a bad idea? Who <laughs> indeed? And yeah, apparently they weren't super responsive to abuse complaints as well. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing when you're getting that many abuse complaints, it's difficult to be yeah. uh, responsive to that. <laughs>
1: It's difficult to care.
0: Um, Twitter's Tor Onion service is dead, apparently. I mean, I'm not really surprised that they let that rot because, you know, probably the person who was running it or the team that was running it isn't there
1: anymore, is my guess. Maybe they didn't pay their onion bill.
0: (laughs) You saw the rumours, though. You saw the rumours that, like, the person who ran their HSM is gone and, like, they can't oh God. generate new certificates. <laughs> like, it's just, at this point, it's just a fun rumor, but it but is. it is
1: sounds so believable. Yeah, and
0: then some, like, parody CISO account on Twitter was saying, no, this is inaccurate. We don't use certificates. <laughs> 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 so there's been a bit of humor around that. But, the, you know, we can confirm the the Tor Onion service is um, is dead. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't really know how many people are using it. Um, I don't know truly how useful these types of services are. To be honest, because you know, normally if you're into a very oppressive uh, country, you tend to not be able to use Tor anyway, right? Yeah, so, e- exactly. Yeah, yeah so right. I'm not real sure, but uh, do we, what do we know here? I've linked through to Joseph Cox right up at this at uh, Vice.
1: Yeah, we don't. Unfortunately, we don't know much. Like it's just kind of gone, as you say. It's almost certainly because the person responsible for maintaining it uh, is also long gone. But yeah, I don't know. You know, I've, I guess I've never had to operate in an environment where the threat model that a hidden service uh twitter is a thing that i would have to care about because it seems yeah. very difficult like there's just so many other problems that you've got at that point of being you know observed using tor through traffic analysis or whatever else or leaking dns everywhere like it's, it's legitimately hard to operate in a very hostile network and i don't know like you said how, how much use was, yeah. you know a facebook onion a Tor onion i mean a, a facebook onion or a twitter onion actually are
0: yeah yeah, well, I know that, in, that that you know certainly in the case of Facebook, it did facilitate a lot of abuse. Like there was a yeah, trade off yes. there, right? Yeah. So yeah. Now look, Patch Tuesday. Mm-hmm. uh, I got to say, this morning, it certainly woke me up when yeah. I read when I read this bug that was included in Patch Tuesday. It turns out it's not actually as big a deal as I thought it was, um, but. the but let me just read you the title of CVE 2023-23415. The title is Internet Control Message Protocol, ICMP, Remote Code Execution Vulnerability. (laughs) Now, when you see that and then you see it has a CVSS of 9.8, so it has a headline of ICMP, Remote Code Execution Vulnerability, and a CVSS of 9.8, and you think, I'm amazed. Like, you know... I think I spoke to to Catalan about this and I was helping him edit the uh, podcast script for our for our three times a week news podcast. And, you know, he mentioned Patch Tuesday. I'm like, you might want to mention this one. And he said, oh, look, I'll, I'll mention it if it starts getting exploited in the wild. And I said to him, mate, if this one starts getting exploited in the wild,
1: you mm-hmm. probably won't
0: have access to the internet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it turns out there's a mitigating factor.
1: Yeah. So, And also like when I read this as well, I scrolled down, I got to the, the bit where Microsoft comments on exploitability and they said... Uh, uh, exploitation more likely, which they're usually pretty conservative in that particular part of the rating mechanism. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um so anyway, this is a uh IPv4 network stack bug uh involving processing of uh fragmented IP headers inside an ICMP error report. So when you you know do something wrong on the internet and the ICMP message comes back, they can include a portion of the packet that caused the error so that the you know, sending station can figure out what happened. Um, and yeah, so this is a fragmentation bug. And of course, you know, we have seen in the past, this is a you know, long uh, and fruitful source of, uh, of errors. And yeah, if you could exploit it, you know, this would be ping of death, you know, code exec. Ping of death
0: on steroids. And it affects, like, all Windows, basically. Yeah,
1: yeah. 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 So Microsoft uh, does say, like, all modern Windows is and (laughs) don't really say how much further back. But, like, when you see it from 2012 back to, you know, 2008, et cetera, like, it's been in the code base for a while. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. So the mitigating factor you mentioned is this, um, the vulnerable code path is only traversed when handling ICMP error messages related to a raw socket. So yeah. your application would need to be using a raw socket uh, and have one open and listening for then this uh, code to be, be traversed. So that's the big thing that makes it not a planet melter. Yeah. And raw socket usage, I mean, I have to say, I, don't, I am not super sure how many Windows applications use raw sockets. They were famously kind of nerfed in Windows XP, uh, courtesy but of... But I think that uh, was Steve. just
0: for TCP, wasn't it? Did that also... You know? so, I mean,
1: raw sockets are uh, used to craft you know, datagrams that aren't necessarily TCP or UDP or whatever else. Yeah. So it's just like
0: absolutely raw. That's the point. Isn't that, that's it? the yeah, point. Yeah. yeah. yeah and yeah. so like you do. Sorry, see... it's been a while. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: so you do, I mean, a common place where you would see raw sockets using is obviously security tools. Anything that needs to craft a non-standard packet, uh, but you also see them in, you know, things that are doing stuff for speed. So for example, uh, parallelized DNS lookups, like if you're doing a lot of DNS pointer lookups, like say if you're a proxy or a very fast web server, some of those will use use raw sockets to craft UDP datagrams so they can do parallel DNS. So there's any, yeah, anything that's doing something weird which is typically going to be for performance or for security reasons that's when often you'll see raw sockets used yeah. but also like you know network monitoring or um, you know bulk scanning tools like that it's not uncommon. Yeah but it's not default windows right which I
0: think is what yes. we're trying to get across because when I first saw it when I first read it I'm like my god if someone worms this yeah. like the internet will not work for a couple of days yeah. while we sort it out right. I mean, and, f-
1: for fortunately exploit mitigation tech you know random address like, randomization etc cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, like does make this kind of stuff a bit more difficult than it was once upon a time but yeah. do you want to gamble the whole yeah. internet on that? <laughs> <laughs> like, do you want to take that risk, right? Yes. Yeah, but yeah.
0: funnily enough, like when I first... I, all I did this morning is to mast it and I posted the CVE number and yeah. the, like the little monk scream emoji. Yes, that was yes, the entire yeah. thing. Uh, 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 uh. And uh, it was actually uh, Kevin Beaumont replied and, and pointed out the raw sockets uh, yeah. thing. And then, you know, because he looped in the um, the actual researcher... Uh, The researcher replied and said, uh, we'll get to share the details eventually. Unfortunately, I don't have access to good statistics on how common raw socket use is. Um, I don't think this is a panic-inducing bug. Uh, DOS is easy. Getting reliable RCE from a network-level bug is hard. But as always... Safer to patch quickly. And um, yeah. <laughs> I agree. And, you know, while we're on pat on the Patch Tuesday topic, uh, a friend of mine also identified another absolute clanger. In the, you know, it's been ages since I've actually dived into
1: advisories on a Patch Tuesday. Like mm-hmm. the only
0: reason I looked is because of this, you know, ICMP thing. But there's mm-hmm. another absolute cracker in here, man.
1: Uh, so, this is a bug in uh, Microsoft Outlook, the email client, uh, whereupon you can cause Outlook to trigger an outbound authentication request, uh, which in Windows environments means net NTLM, which you can relay and then onwards to great victory and wondrous joy. This is also funny because it's one of the classic, uh, like, not only does it trigger in the preview pane, it triggers before the preview pane. So, you just kind of like receive the email. Make an outbound auth request, get relayed. An attacker is uh, authed as you somewhere else. Whomp, yeah, I mean, a, a, womp, a s- womp.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, essentially, what happens is you send someone someone an email to receive their password hash. Yes, you yes. know, I mean, that's nice. Yeah, that's
1: nice. I start. can't think how
0: that'd be useful. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, what's the use of Outlook like these days? Because I'm, you know, out of touch on. That sort of stuff. I just would have thought most people would be using kind of webmail these days with 0365, uh, but no. Yeah, because yeah, you're giving me the, that face, the, right? Because this <laughs> is the benefit of doing it in the flesh. You're like sort of wincing at me saying
1: that. Yeah, yeah. I mean the 365 like thick clienty outlook is still very prevalent. And the, the web one is a bit a bit clunky. So most yeah. like most people by default are gonna end up on the the real outlook rather than the we about look that us poor Unix hippies have yeah. to use.
0: Now, I can't even claim to be a capable defender of my own machine, but I will say that my policy of um, just run absolutely everything in Chrome um, seems to serve me well, <laughs> yes. right? So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And this is just yet one more example. But Adam, that is actually it for the news uh, this week. Thanks a lot for sitting here in my office. And I will point out too, for the listeners who can't see Adam, he is sweating <laughs> so much because his poor Kiwi body cannot handle the Australian, <laughs> the Australian heat. And of course, when you record these things, you need to close the windows. Yeah. So, mate, uh, thank you very much. I'm going to get you a glass of water now. It's 28
1: degrees, which for a poor Kiwi, you know, snowman like me, <laughs> <laughs> is a lot, of, a lot of degrees. He is melting. Um, yes.
0: And yeah, of course we're gonna we're gonna roll down to CyberCon. Uh, we're flying together down to Canberra uh, to to record live uh, episode seven hundred. I'm really looking forward. to
1: that. Yeah, it's gonna be great fun. Uh, we've never really done a, a recording. We've never done a live recording in a live no. audience. So no. good good luck, I guess, gentle audience. Uh, be bear, bear with us. <laughs> all right, all right.
0: Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna let you go now. Ice water stat, and uh, listeners will be hearing from you again next week.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. Talk to you then.
0: That was Adam Boileau there with a the check of the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Jared Chong, the Chief Operating Officer at Ubico. And today we're talking about why enrolling more than one security key is a really good idea and why as a policy it can solve a lot of your help desk issues uh, as an enterprise. So if users have a primary and a backup, you know your help desk account reset volumes are going to drop pretty dramatically. Now, Apple took this approach with its new iCloud Advanced Data Protection feature. I didn't know this, uh, but here's Jared Chong to explain.
2: The thing that Apple did, what I find really interesting, is they took all the lessons learned from Google. It's like, you know, they had the Google Advanced Protection, and it says, you know what, we're going to do better. We're going to say, you need two security keys to start this journey. And we're going to prompt, and we're going to make the UIs work the way that we want it to work, so that it's just seamless. So I think it really took it to mainstream, I believe, and security keys, obviously, they claim it's really important for those who need extra protection, uh, which aka means that why wouldn't you have extra protection if you feel like you are important? And that actually helps people understand that it is important to think about it in their whole journey, wherever they use it, whether it's Apple, whether it's Google, whether it's Microsoft. There's this whole picture that people have to understand like if one account is compromised then pretty much all accounts are compromised so i think the beauty about using you know yubikeys keys and security keys is you can use the same device to protect all these accounts which is fantastic
0: now did you say that apple requires the use of two separate security keys
2: yes they do so in the instructions it says what is required to set this up it says at least two vital certified security keys right in And they're very explicit. If you don't have two, and they can check that, you're actually not going to get it registered. So, now, is that is that
0: because if you lose, if you have one key and you drop it into some water or something, uh, or you lose it or it breaks or whatever, then that puts you in a really sticky situation? Because I'd imagine that's why you'd have to have two, right? One would be the one that you use, and one would be the one that you put somewhere very, very safe, um, just in case your something happens to your primary.
2: Exactly. I mean, ultimately, they don't want to get the call that says, you know what, I've lost that one thing that I set up, now help me get back to my account, right? So, like... Well, you, don't call me because you have the other one, right? So I, I think it, that's a practical element to this thing. So it's also
0: about minimizing support. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's both, it's yeah, yeah, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, we, we, we talk about this all the time. It's, it just makes sense.
0: Yeah. So I think one thing that's interesting here in Apple rolling this out is it is an acknowledgement of the limitations of something like a passkey on a device, right? In that, if you lose that device... If a user has a, you know, a U2F key that is linked to that account, then if they buy a new device, they can, they can provision that device to the account, right? Whereas if they don't have that, then it's you're back at help desk hell. So I can really see that this supports something that you've been saying for quite a while, which is that hardware security keys and on-device U2F web or then whatever, like they kind of go hand in hand.
2: They do. They absolutely do. I mean, I think this is also like acknowledgement that, you know, whatever mechanisms we use, we've got to think of the whole lifecycle of your credential, right? So if, if let's say you, you, you did lose, and it's not just about Apple devices, so you could be using passkey, we call them uh, multi-device passkeys, but, you know, they are, they're syncable and, they, they, you know, you move them everywhere. You could say, I don't want to use the Apple ecosystem. I want to go use the Google ecosystem. And if you didn't set it up well, you're you're defaulting to be KBAs again to set it up. And so there's a lot of these recovery mechanisms if you're not in one ecosystem that you have to use to get back in if you don't have some type of external authenticator like a YubiKey to kind of bootstrap everything. So moving forward, if we think about credential, I think having multiple credentials that you can trust in different forms is going to help not just the end user, but actually it's going to actually help the ecosystem have a high level of baseline rather than, you know what, the recovery flow, like everyday use is fine, but when I need to recover something, I'm going to have to do some fishable type of authentication, which is what's, yeah. Th- what's happening Yeah, I mean, this today. is
0: exactly, or or fall back to some sort of help desk process that can be socially engineered. So, you know, sometimes an enterprise might provision keys to its staff, but their process for giving that user access again, if they lose their YubiKey, might fall back to something like authenticating them via telephone. And that's, you know, (laughs) at that point, you're kind of back at, well, what's the point? Your security is only as good as your help desk processes. So I think what Apple's done here is extremely smart because it largely solves that problem. Unless you've got a user whose primary YubiKey, you know, falls into their coffee and they can't remember where they put their secondary. (laughs) But I'd, I'd imagine that's, going to be a pretty small percentage. You know, that's not going to happen all that often.
2: Yeah, and you know, I, I think one thing that we've all mentioned as well is when you use your security key for more than one service, the chances of you, like, completely losing, forgetting it becomes quite hard over time. Like, so, for example, if you said, you know, I protect my Apple ID, I can I protect my Google uh, email, but then I also protect my my banks. Then I also protect my you know, how I do taxes. And then, you know, like, then I maybe protect my crypto accounts, right? It,
0: and at that point, this is something that you yeah, kind of like know where it is, right?
2: Now. You don't want to <laughs> lose it. You're yeah. just like, why would I lose this thing? This is my life. So when you have the security key tied to more than one thing, it just changes the perspective of how a user would want to use it and protect sure,
0: it. Sure. Sure. But there's always the chance of hardware failure or of someone course, falls over course, and and course. it snaps or, or whatever. So yeah. I guess my next question for you is, okay, so Apple's offering like you need to have two, uh, to, to enroll in this, um, extra protection with the other services like Google and, and, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter. And, you know, there's a number of services that support, um, this type of authentication. Um, can you enroll multiple I, I know you're not required to enroll multiple keys, but can you enroll multiple keys uh, for those services as well?
2: Good news. I think majority of all the services that we talked to when they started this whole journey with fido, you know they only enable one key. I would say most now have the ability to register multiple keys, if, including Twitter, Twitter actually expanded uh, support for multiple keys you know not, not that long ago, but you know they've made that change as well. We know of other uh, enterprise services as well. that just, you know, from one key to 10 keys, for example. So I think we're really seeing the acknowledgement that, you know, having more than one makes sense. And and you can. I mean, the, the point is that that's as, as easy to register the next one as the first one.
0: Now, look, you just mentioned Twitter. Twitter just came up. We were having a bit of a chuckle before we got recording about the whole SMS thing where, you know, basically to... If you still want to use SMS MFA, it's only going to be offered to paid subscribers, which, you know, as I've said on the show before, makes sense to me because, you know, it's still a weak form of authentication, but you don't want to do anything to alienate, you know, the 300,000 odd people who are actually paying Twitter for their service. By the way, the numbers on Twitter Blue are just like they've managed to kill off like 2 billion in revenue. And I think Twitter Blue is bringing in less than 30 million a year. So, more business genius moves from um from Elon Musk there. um But yeah, I mean, what were your thoughts when you saw this whole controversy erupt? I mean, I imagine you would have thought your natural and obvious reaction would have been, well, just use a YubiKey. Because, you know, even in an unpaid tier, you can still use a YubiKey with Twitter.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, this is kind of bittersweet at the same time, right? Like, I mean, we, we don't want to see sort of this scenario be prying because it's cost. I mean, ultimately, it should be security, but you know, as security folks, we'll take it, you know? I mean, it's one of those things where it we now see industry understanding there's a cost, real cost, right? Real, real cost for using weak MFA. In this case, SMS, there's a real cost for this. And I think the attackers figure this out too. Like, you know what? It's not just a security. I got to make money out of using this weak security. Yeah. And I think that changes the game. I think, you know, we've always said, hey, you should do better. You know, there's this carrot, like, there's a better thing, you know, just the gold standard. Now there's a stick. This is, like, this is a stick. Like, <laughs> hey, if, you're gonna use, if yeah. you want to be that not so good user and you want to use this thing, it's going to be expensive. So yeah, I, we'll, we'll take it. You know, security folks, I think take for cons-
0: I think you're right when it comes to consumer-facing services. I think for enterprise, like, they'll be able to keep that Twilio bill under control because, you know, random people can't just turn up and, you know, cause SMSs to be sent to numbers that are, ported to dodgy telcos that charge ridiculous termination fees and whatever, right? Like, And that, that's been the problem for Twitter is because anyone can just spin up an account under any phone number. You know, you've just got all these weird incentives lining up where these dodgy telcos will spin up fake Twitter accounts to get Twitter to send messages to them so that they can collect fees. Correct you got Twilio, which isn't really incentivized all that much to fix the problem. I mean, I'm sure they do do some things, but I can't imagine it's a burning priority for them. So you've just got what's really weird is when it comes to consumer facing services, all of the incentives just point straight towards abuse, you know. And as you say, ultimately, this might not be a bad thing because it means that consumer facing services are just going to have to stop offering this as an option.
2: Great. And it's it's really the same you know, the the rising tide has to lift all, all these boats, right? And I think we have to link that it's connected. They are connected. Like what you do as an end user does affect how you view enterprise. So if suddenly all, I guess, you know, consumer services have less SMS, then enterprise would be like, why are we doing this? Why are we the now, you know, type of industry that will continue to proliferate this thing? So I think there's a realization that, it It's actually going to cost you more if you're going to use weak m f a and it's not just from a security perspective, there are other costs that people start to realize is getting more and more and fraud as and when any organization when it hits a certain threshold and it crosses that threshold, then decisions start to become very swift in terms of auto artists
0: yeah, I mean, I think I agree with one of the concerns with regard to the Twitter situation, I mean, first of all, only 2.5% of accounts actually use MFA and of them, 75% uh, do use SMS, MFA instead of code generators or security keys. Um, So I do think it's possible that because of the way they've handled this, a lot of people are just going to wind up turning off MFA. But just because Twitter did it this way doesn't mean others will do it that way. I, I can imagine some you know, some social media network that isn't drowning uh, because their business is ruined might do this in a more intelligent way and sort of guide people towards code generators or, or keys.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, back to what we said before, I mean, if Apple, which is very mainstream, right, has a deliberate message for how they want to move the industry, I think everybody should pay attention.
0: Yeah, are they actually offering... um keys via their, like, Apple store?
2: No, not directly. I think um, they have... Because that, that surprises yeah.
0: me. I would have thought if they're recommending that people use them. I mean, if they can sell you a Belkin, you know, whatever, uh, Gizmo, surely they can sell you a YubiKey too, right?
2: Certainly, certainly. I, I think that's something that we're looking into right now. They, um, they just make the statement, go go find something certified, which they, they also want to make sure that there are some minimum bar least.
0: All right, Jared Chong, uh, thank you very much for joining us. And congratulations, too, because I understand you are now the Chief Operating Officer of Ubico. That's wonderful news. Congratulations. And, um, yeah, we'll be talking
2: to you again soon. Thanks very much, Patrick.
0: That was Jared Chong with a chat about all things Yubiki there. Big thanks to him for that. And yeah, normally I'd end a Yubico interview by saying, you know, you should go out and get one, but I guess today I'll I'll end it with, you should go out and get two. (laughs) But that's it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow in the Risky Business News RSS feed with another edition of Seriously Risky Business with Tom Uren. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.